Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. One of the things that I remember about my mom, she passed away probably half a dozen years or so ago, is that every spring, and I think it would every spring, she would often point out that the kind of leaves that you see in the spring season, you cannot find in later on, even in June, July, let alone August or September. Uh, this is a piece of a maple branch that I just got this morning. Uh, there's probably 8, 10, 12 maybe leaves on it. And every one of those leaves, every one of them, is near perfection. That is something that's going to be impossible to find in as little as maybe three weeks from now. Go out in July and August and try to find even one single leaf that is not eaten by an insect, that doesn't have blight on it, that isn't wilted in some way. It's almost impossible to find. But this little branch has a number of leaves on, and actually this one leaf already has just a little bit of, of blight on the part of the leaf. Uh, one of the things I always remember my mom saying in the spring is just sort of relishing and delighting in kind of the perfection of nature that happens in spring. And it's always fascinated me how true that is. Uh, go check out leaves now and then check them out at the end of summer, and a leaf like this will have holes eaten in it by insects and bugs. It'll have blight on it. It'll have mold or mildew. It'll have some other kind of thing attacking it, which just lacks the perfection that it does at this precise time and season of year. Uh, One of the things that I love about Scripture is that it tells us about the story of our lives. It tells us as to, to why we long and why, why we have a connection with beauty and perfection, even though we've never actually truly experienced it, but we also have lives that have blight in them. We have insect holes. Uh, the, we have hardship and circumstances that impact our lives. We long for the perfection and beauty of something like this, But one of the reasons that I love the Bible and even believe in its truth is because it tells us a story honestly about the fact that our lives don't necessarily look like this. There's blight, there's imperfection, there's insect eating, there's all kinds of things that impact us. And so we're in this message series about Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 17. And in this chapter... Uh, We see amazing works of God. We see amazing works of God's power. But we also see hardship, challenge, and circumstances that simply don't add up. So this morning, Fajer is going to come, and she's going to read 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 7 through 24. She's going to rewind a little bit and read some verses we looked at last week, and then read some verses again that we'll dive into for, uh, as a, our text for this week. Uh, it's really interesting that we have Fajer this morning. Uh, she is actually uh, was born in Jordan. Uh, she actually lives in the 
modern-day country, or she actually lives uh, in the modern-day country of Jordan, is exactly where the Kirith Ravine is. Uh, we mentioned there's going to be a map up here on the screens behind me. Uh, the Kirith Ravine is the place where, if we can get the map up, that'd be awesome. There's a place where God actually told Elijah to go and be by the brook. To, uh, to the west of the Jordan, or I'm sorry, to the east of the Jordan River. That's modern day Jordan. And uh, Fajer actually knows exactly where that is and has been there, which is pretty amazing. And so uh, Fajer's actually native language is Arabic. And so I was talking to her a little bit earlier in the morning about Arabic and Hebrew and how that all works. And if you could read 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 7 through 24. And uh, she's going to do it in English. Uh, she could do it in Arabic. Um, and maybe one of these weeks we'll actually ask you to read something in Arabic for us. Um, sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and for my son that we may eat and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel said. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah." Sometimes later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Oh, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, Oh, Lord, my God, let this boy life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah cry, and the boy life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Fajer. Um, 
Just to pick up on where we left off last week, uh, we said that for this whole series, Elijah is not the main character. God is the main character. Uh, Last week, we said that the Lord's name, the personal name of God, looks something like this. Uh, best that we can tell. Uh, it's pronounced Yahweh. Often in our translations, it looks like capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Uh, this often stands in for the personal name of God. And as best as we can tell in Hebrew, Hebrew from right to left, uh, that is most likely pronounced Yahweh. In 1 Kings chapter 17, even though Elijah is newly introduced in that chapter, Elijah's name shows up 11 times, and the Lord, Yahweh's name, shows up 14 times. So even in writing the account in 1 Kings chapter 17, the writer is very clear to point out that even though we never heard from Elijah before, he's freshly introduced, Elijah is not really the main character Yahweh, the Lord, is the main character. And so this morning, we're actually going to be looking at some, uh, just two things about the Lord, Yahweh, who he is, and, um, and just, so let's just dive in. Number one, first of all, Yahweh bewilders us, but he is faithful. Yahweh, the personal Lord God, Yahweh bewilders us, but he's faithful. You know, when you go through 1 Kings chapter 17, it's rather kind of fascinating what God does, because you wouldn't really write it like he does it. Uh, Elijah prays there's no rain in Israel. We know that that happens for about three and a half years. Uh, Elijah goes, and he goes by the Kirith, in, into the Kirith Ravine, where the Kirith Brook is. Again, we'll put that map up on the screens. Uh, there he's, he's hung, hangs out by the Kirith Brook. Eventually, he's given instructions to go further up northwest to Zarephath. That's the area of Phoenicia. That's where he meets this woman who's a widow. Uh, Elijah asks her to give him a, make a, a cake out of bread from the flour and oil that she has, promises her that it won't run out. And sure enough, God continues to sustain Elijah as well as this widow, as well as her son in this area of Zarephath to the, to the north. So that's where all of this happens. But, but here's kind of what I want you to see. If you look at the text, if you, if you just read it, God can do anything. He takes Elijah, he places him in the Kirith Ravine by the brook. Ravens feed him in the morning and evening. And friends, if God's got the power to do that, he certainly has the power to make the brook not stop running. But we read that the brook dries up. Elijah goes northwest to this area called Zarephath, meets this widow lady. He says to her, give me some food to eat, make a a loaf of bread out of the flour and oil that you have. Her flour and oil don't run out. They continue to sustain her and her son, but eventually her son gets sick and he dies. If God has the power to to have ravens feed Elijah at the brook, if he's got power to not have the flask of oil and the, the flour run out, certainly doesn't he have the power to not make her son sick? Well, like, doesn't he have the power to protect her from the sickness of her son? And maybe her son does fall sick. Doesn't he have the power to somehow prevent that sickness from taking her son's life? When you read scripture, 
You're often mystified by how God works. Next week, Jeremy Moore is going to lead us into 1 Kings chapter 18. And in 1 Kings chapter 18, we find out that there's another hundred or so prophets of God who are hidden in two different caves that God provides for through this guy named Obadiah. Well, if if God is feeding Elijah by ravens, why couldn't he feed a hundred other prophets by ravens? Here's what I want you to understand, friends. Yahweh, the Lord God, he bewilders us, but he is faithful. He bewilders us, but he is faithful. Our confidence is not that God is faithful in doing what we think needs to be done, but our confidence is in the fact that God is faithful to his character and that he is accomplishing his purposes no matter what happens. If you're anything like me, you're probably bewildered as to how God works in your life. You kind of maybe see circumstances. You could say, okay, like if A happens and B will happen and C will happen and D, and you kind of like got the roadmap of how to get from point A to point D. But you ever notice God hardly ever follows your roadmap. He hardly ever follows your roadmap. The Lord Yahweh God bewilders you, but he's faithful. He bewilders me, but he's faithful. Which means this which means this. If you're kind of looking for God to operate according to the A, B, C, D of how you think he's going to operate, most likely you'll miss him. If you're kind of looking for God to operate how you think is most efficient for him to operate, you'll probably miss what he's doing. Because God typically doesn't operate efficiently, and he typically doesn't follow your roadmap. God doesn't follow your roadmap. He follows his roadmap. I mean, the roadmap of 1 Kings chapter 17, it's all twisted up. Like God sometimes seems to like supernaturally work here, and then sometimes his supernatural power seems to be absent. Then he works over here, and it's just like, man, he's so inefficient. You can never tell where he's going to work. Yahweh, Lord God of heaven, he doesn't follow your roadmap. He's a bewildering God, friends. He just is. But one thing you do know is that he's faithful. He is faithful. God is not so much interested in efficiency. He's not interested in the shortest path to the destination. God is doing more than what you see. God is at work in deeper ways than what you perceive. God's sovereignty is not based on your observations. God is more interested in shaping your life than in smoothing your path. God is more interested in building your faith in him than he is in removing obstacles. God is more interested in developing your muscle of trust than he is in paving your path. God, we need to enter the chaos of the story because that's where God is at work. Listen, friends, listen. God is far more interested in working in your life than he is in paving your path. God is more interested in developing a muscle of trust and faith in him than he is in making everything smooth. The Lord God bewilders, but he's faithful. I don't know why he chooses to feed Elijah with ravens and these other hundred prophets he has taken care of in caves. Like, I don't know why the God of the universe who can make a flask of oil and flour not run out, why he lets a widow's son get sick. I don't know. Like, I can't figure out why the God 
who can stop the rain for three and a half years and has that kind of power, lets a widow's sick son pass away. He bewilders me. He doesn't follow your map. He doesn't follow my map. The, the Lord God, he bewilders, but he's faithful. Secondly, Yahweh baffles, but he's gracious. Yahweh bewilders, but he's faithful. Secondly, Yahweh baffles me, but he's gracious. We're going to dive into those verses 17 through 24 uh, that talk about the, this widow's son passing away. Uh, here's what it says. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? She says, what's up with this? Like, how did this happen to me? Did you come here just to like condemn me and judge me? Did you come here to highlight and point out some of my sin? And friends, these are the questions probably all of us ask of our lives. We have a sense of what the beauty of life should look like. And yet we know that the leaves of our lives, the leaves of our personal lives are often eaten. They're filled with blight. They're filled with imperfection. They're filled with hardship. And then sometimes we wonder, is this God's hand of judgment? Is this something that I did? What did I do to deserve this? And we wrestle with that kind of reality. And so we're going to take pretty much the rest of our time and just kind of like work that through as to, to how we process difficult things, hard circumstances. Are they the result of God's judgment in our lives? Because we often ask the same question that the widow lady asks. Often we process negative things almost in a very similar way to the way that karma operates. And karma in Hinduism and Buddhism is the sum, the sum of a person's actions in this and previous states of existence are viewed as determining or deciding their fate in their future existence. And so karma is this idea that maybe what I did in the past is now impacting my life. Kind of what, what comes around goes around. And right now, I'm simply getting the positive stuff, maybe from something positive I did, or the negative stuff from something negative. That's the way that karma operates. But friends, the, the message of Scripture is that our lives are not based on karma, but instead, they're based on grace. They're not based on what comes around, goes around. Instead, they're based on grace. But I love how honest and open this lady is with God and with Elijah. He says, what have I done? Have you come here to point out a sin in my life? Have you come here to sort of like highlight some failure that I've had and now my son is passing away? And that was actually the sort of the dominating mindset in ancient times. Dominating mindset is if something like this happened to you, it was the God's disfavor on you. She probably already thought, you know, I've already got some strikes against me. She's a widow, meaning her husband passed away. That in itself would have already been expressioned to her. The gods must be angry at me. They must be ticked off. Now her son dies. That just doubles it up, friends. It's the way the ancient mind thought. Even in Jesus' day, in John chapter 9, Jesus with his disciples, here's what it says. As Jesus went along, he saw a blind 
a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, so his disciples are traveling with Jesus. Here's what they asked Jesus when they see this blind guy sitting beside the road. They said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, our read Jesus is that this guy's spots on his leaves, this guy's hard circumstances, this guy's challenging difficulties, they're the result of either this guy's sin or his parents' sin. Which one is it? Because we all know that you kind of like get what you have coming to you. Well, Jesus challenges that, and we'll get to that a little bit later on. But that's often how we live too. And so it's important for us to kind of dive into what this looks like. And so I'm just actually going to go through a number of points to just process with all of us. How does this work? The consequences, the, the difficulties, the challenges that we experience. How does that relate to sin? How does that relate to God? Because we often ask those same kind of questions, and those questions lurk in our souls. Uh, by the way, I'm going to mention a number of points. You don't need to write them down. Uh, I actually did put small little handouts in the back tables right underneath the offering boxes. You can pick one up as you walk out. Uh, they actually have all of these six points that I'm going to be mentioning, so don't feel like you got to stress out and write everything down. You can pick that up after the service if you'd like. No, number one, general sin brings general hardship. General sin brings general hardship. Back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, God says this to Adam and Eve. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all of the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. God says this. He says, sin in general has impacted our world. It's because of sin in general and this world being caught underneath the curse of sin that leaves are eaten by summer's end. That there's blight, that there's drought. It's because of the curse of sin in general that there's horrific tornadoes, earthquakes, tsunamis that devastate towns and villages and take people's lives. We have cancer. We have illness. Our lives are filled with the blight of sin in general because Scripture makes it clear the circumstances that we see around us, the hard things, sin in general has caused hardship in general. Number two, not every hardship is the result of specific sin. Yes, general sin brings general hardship, but not every hardship is the result of specific sin. Remember when I mentioned in John chapter 9, the disciples asked Jesus, hey, Jesus, who sinned, this guy or his parents, that he was born blind? Here's what Jesus responds to his disciples. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God may be displayed in him. In other words, Jesus is saying, no, your paradigm is wrong. You naturally think that if this guy is blind, either he or his parents did something wrong in order to earn that. That's karma. Jesus says, I'm not about karma. I'm about the operation of grace. I'm about my goodness and my glory being on display. This man was actually born blind, and his, 
his hardship, his circumstances, his suffering are actually going to be a testimony to my renewing power in his life. Listen, friends, I don't know what's going on in your life, but whatever it is, if you're a follower of Jesus, whatever's happening, Yahweh God may baffle you, but Yahweh Lord God is faithful and he's gracious. And whatever is happening in your life is actually designed to be a display of his glory, his power, his grace, his intervention, and who you are. You know, we got to be careful with this because there's a book in the Bible in the Old Testament named Job. Job was a guy who was wealthy, had lots of possessions, great, massive family, and it was literally all taken away. Job was reduced to nothing. And Job had a bunch of friends come around him. And these friends could have all spoke into Job's life and said, Job, like, like you had to have sinned for all of this to happen. All of this loss, all this suffering, all this devastation in your life, Job, is the result of you holding on to something. You just got to figure out what it is because that's what's leading to the devastation that you're experiencing. By the end of Job, God is really ticked off with Job's friends. Really ticked off. He's really upset that Job's friends spoke into Job's life as a correlation that Job somehow disobeyed to warrant the hardship he was going through. Because in the end of, in the beginning of Job, we're actually let into the story in which a way his friends weren't. And we actually know that, that God allows Job to be tested for God's own honor and glory. And God was really upset with Job's friends because their only input from, for Job was, you somehow are getting what you deserved and God is punishing you for something that you did. General sin brings general hardship. Not every hardship is the result of specific sin. Thirdly, specific sin sometimes brings present consequences. Sometimes specific sin does sometimes bring present consequences. The book of Proverbs is all about a God saying, hey, here's a wise way to live. And often, if you live wisely, it will actually accomplish a good outcome. Doesn't make it bulletproof, doesn't make it certain, doesn't make it absolute. But, it, but the book of Proverbs is all about, hey, follow this principle, and your life will often see the result of that. Don't follow this principle, and your life will often be negatively impacted. Here's just a couple of ways that that works out. Gossip can bring loss of friendship, right? I mean, if, if you gossip, yet yeah, chances are that you actually will lose friends and you'll end up a little bit more lonely. Here's a bunch of others. Workaholism can bring the higher potential for physical breakdown. Laziness can bring insufficient provision. Selfishness can bring alienation in relationship. Gluttony can lead to obesity and higher levels of health risks. Sexual promiscuity can bring loneliness and alienation. Drunkenness can bring consequences of irresponsible behavior. Negative thinking can bring worry and sullenness. Arrogance and bravado can often bring violence. Self-achievement 
achievement can bring stress and the depletion of joy. Self-validation through acquiring possessions can bring debt and deficiency. Irresponsibility can bring long-term loss of employment. Unkindness can bring isolation. I mean, those are just a couple of ways that, that biblical principles, principles that we find in Proverbs, that if you kind of, if you kind of violate this idea, say, oh, I'm not, just never going to work, I'm just going to hang out, yet you'll probably lack. Again, not bulletproof. Doesn't mean every one of these is a one-to-one -one correlation, but specific sin sometimes does bring specific consequences in a natural kind of way. Don't study for a test. Eh, like you might not do so well. I mean, it's just kind of like the way that works. Not always the case, but often the case. Sometimes it also brings some God-ordained consequences. In 1 Kings chapter 17, Israel is going through a season of no rain for three and a half years. That was actually a direct result of their violation of God's covenant with them. All the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 11 and chapter 28, God says very specifically to them, look, if you do not follow after me, I'm going to send some judgment your way. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 28, maybe verses 23 and 24. The sky over your head will be bronze. The ground beneath you iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. It will come down from the skies until you are destroyed. What's God saying? Look, he says, I'm in a covenant relationship with you. If you don't follow after me, if you follow after God's, one of the consequences that you're going to see is that there's not going to be any rain. The sky above you is going to be bronze over your head. The ground beneath you, iron. That's exactly what's happening in 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul reminds the people in Corinth who are just kind of like, they would come to communion. They would literally use the communion time as a party time. There would often be drunkenness and, and just sort of all kinds of behavior that wasn't honoring to God. And Paul actually spoke into the church of Corinth and said, look guys, he said, when you come to the Lord's Supper, when you eat bread that's a symbol of Christ's broken body, when you drink the cup that's a symbol of his blood that's poured out, if you're not acknowledging, if you're not honoring the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Paul said to the people of Corinth, I'm going to bring discipline into your lives. I want you to be aware that I'm Yahweh. I'm a personal God. I'm a God of holiness. Number four, third one was specific sin sometimes brings present consequences. Number four, all sin will be fully judged, but not all sin is judged now. All sin will be fully judged, but not all sin is judged now. Throughout scripture, you find some of the folks in the Bible kind of just Man, frustrated with God. God, why aren't you judging sin? Here's what David says in Psalm chapter 73, verses 13 and 14. He says, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. David is saying, man, like God, I've tried to follow after you and yet I'm suffering. I'm the one who's on the out." It, verse 3 says, For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
They have no struggle. Their bodies are healthy and strong. David's complaint to God is, God, I'm envious because the wicked seem to prosper. I'm envious because their bodies seem to be healthy and strong, and I'm following after you, and I'm not. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1. Here's what Jeremiah says. You are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you, yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all of the faithless live at ease? Jeremiah says, man, like God, I've been following you. I've sacrificed a lot. Why is it that the wicked prosper? What are those who have, why are those who are faithless? Why do they live at ease? All sin will be fully judged, but not all sin is judged now. Throughout Scripture, we find that there will come a day when God does bring all things to right, that he, he judges all things. In Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, Paul is speaking to here. He says, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Paul says to these folks, he says, look, by the way, it may not, you may not see it now, but there will come a day when God sort of balances the books. There will come a day when that which is evil will be brought to account. There will come a day when we stand before God and that which is sin, that which is evil, that which falls short of God's glory actually will be judged. And here's the deal, friends, and we'll We'll talk about this probably a little bit later on in the series. God's judgment is not, does not contradict his love. In fact, God's judgment is actually an expression of his love. God would not be loving if he enabled evil and wickedness to continue to prevail. He would not be loving. Yahweh, the Lord God, his judgment is actually an extension of of his love. Again, we'll probably get into that later on in future weeks. Last point. Sin judged in Jesus brings life. Sin judged in you brings destruction. A couple of thoughts with that. 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 through 24. Again, this widow's son falls sick. He eventually dies. Elijah goes to her, he takes the son in his arms, places it on his bed, lies across his son, probably in, sort of like symbolizing the intensity of God's power, and his son is actually raised to life, he's, he's given his life back. In other words, God's power interrupts and stops and actually brings back to life that which is hard, that which is broken, that which is eaten by insects, that which has blights. 850 years after this scene, there would be another person. This person would be God himself. This person would break all of would, would break the rule that we think cannot be broken. This person lived a completely sinless life. This person never fell short of God's glory. This person never in his whole life did anything that was sinful or fell short of the beauty 
of who God is. And yet this person was crucified. This person took on himself the evil, the wickedness, the sin of others. Here's what God says. All evil has to be judged. All sin must be judged. It has to be judged. Here's what happens in Scripture. Either it's judged in the person of Jesus or it's judged in you. It's either judged in the person of Jesus or it's judged in you. It has to be judged. It's part of God's love. It's who he is. For God not to judge, it would be a mean, nasty God because he would be allowing evil to continue. God has to judge. But here it is. The Lord Yahweh God is not a God of karma. He's a God of grace. He steps into the story and he actually takes on us the judgment for sin so that we can experience the new life in Christ. The message of Scripture is this. Yes, God created things beautifully. Yes, he created things with perfection. Yes, he created with fullness. There's blight, there's sin, there's evil, there's hardship, there's suffering that impacts our lives. A lot of it is just because we live in a broken world. Some of it might be because of our own stuff. But whatever it is, it doesn't matter because Jesus is the only one who can fix it. See, friends, here's the deal. We often get obsessed with, oh my goodness, what did I do? What do I got to do to be on God's good side? You can't do anything to be on God's good side. Jesus did all that you can do to be on God's good side. You are on God's good side, not because of your behavior, but because of Jesus. You are not on God's good side because you try to work hard. You are on God's good side because Jesus took your sin upon himself so that you could have life. That's a God of grace, not a God of karma. I'm going to invite our team to come up, and as they do, let me just kind of jump to this verse in Mark chapter 1. Love the gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark is a fast-moving gospel. And in the very beginning of Mark, the first thing, the first thing that Mark records that Jesus says is this. Again, these are the first words that Mark records that Jesus says. Listen to them. The time has come, he said. He's quoting Jesus. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Just talk about that for a second. And often kind of where we start is, you know, you're a sinner, you're evil, you've got evil in your heart, there's darkness, that's, that stuff's all true. But, but notice what Jesus says. Jesus cast this vision. He says, the kingdom of God is here. God is at work in the world. God is at work bringing that which is broken back to life. God is at work in the world bringing insect-eaten leaves back to full life. God's at work in the world bringing forgiveness and restoration and healing. And so Jesus creates this grand vision of this is the kingdom of heaven. 
God is at work in the world, recreating, restoring, bringing newness. And Jesus says this, you can be part of that if you want. You're not going to get there yourself. You're not going to make your insect-eaten leaves whole again. You're just not. We're not, through our efforts, going to make a blighted world whole again. You're just, and we are just not. But Jesus came on the scene. And he said, yeah, this is my original creation. I'm here to take the curse of all sin on my life. Repent and believe. In other words, man, don't be obsessed with trying to do better. Be obsessed with being in Christ. Don't be obsessed with, oh my goodness, what did I do to deserve this? Be obsessed with the God who comes here in the person of Jesus and gives us his grace for healing and restoration and renewal. Be obsessed with being in Christ. You know, maybe some of you have never done that before. Maybe as you sing the song, it would be a great time to just even sing this as a prayer to God and just invite the renewing and recreating work of God into your life. But for all of us, we don't obsess over what we can do to kind of make insect-eaten leaves whole again. Blighted leaves new again. Instead, instead of karma, it's the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So why don't we stand and let's sing this song together.
thank you that you are good. Yahweh, Lord, bewilders us, but he's faithful. Yahweh, Lord, baffles us, but he's gracious. God, we invite your power, your new creation to take over our lives. We want to be in Christ and not in us. We want to pursue you, not simply our own righteousness. Thank you that you are a God who is gracious, that sin is judged in you and not in ourselves. May we enter that life May we extend that life to others. We ask it in the name of Jesus and everyone who agreed said, amen, amen. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. Our prayer team is down here to the right. Uh, God bless and have a wonderful day.